0: Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name, or at minimum by face, we're collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today, we continue our series, Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders, with our guest, Dr. Chris Baish. He's Professor Emeritus in Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown, Youngstown State University, where he taught for 33 years. He's written about his psychedelic adventures in LSD and the Mind of the Universe, the story of his 20-year journey with LSD, and also Dark Night, Early Dawn, a pioneering work in psychedelic philosophy and collective consciousness. Chris's resume is long and impressive, and I refer you to the Internet for more depth and breadth about him. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Chris.
1: Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Before I begin with questions, I want to offer our listeners this teaser. During today's interview, Chris is going to tell us about his 73 carefully implemented and guided experiences with high dosage LSD, operationally defined as between five and 600 micrograms. I think that is a great teaser. Well, oh, before I, one (laughs) other thing before I begin with the questions, I, I wanna send you a warm regards from a friend of yours, And it happens to be my brother-in-law, Bill Repke. Uh,
1: Ah, Bill was a yeah, good friends. He went over every chapter, chapter by chapter, of the book when I was working on it. He gave me great feedback on it. It Was very constructive and helpful.
0: Oh, that's good to know. So you're a psychedelic elder. How old are you, Chris?
1: I'm about to turn seventy-two.
0: Yep. Welcome aboard. I yeah. I can somewhat still remember that age. <laughs> and what's what's been your primary education uh, through your life? Tell us a little bit about your background and your occupation.
1: You know, I'm the last person you would ever expect to have written a book on LSD research. Uh, I began my life in mississippi in the deep south i was a seminarian for four years in high school and one year in college i went to notre dame and got a degree in theology got a a masters from cambridge university in new testament criticism uh and got my phd from brown university in philosophy of religion it was only after i finished graduate school when i was beginning my work at youngstown state university where i taught in the department of philosophy and religious studies, that I discovered Stan Groff's work and read his book *Realms of the Human Unconscious*, and in that reading, uh, my life pivoted, and I felt like I had found something that was really important to my discipline, which was philosophy of religion. Really important for the future, uh, so I began my work there. So, for thirty-three years, I taught in the department of religious studies, I taught you know, traditional courses, did the things every academic does, teaching and take care of students and serve on committees and do all the things you do. But in my nighttime job, I began this long and systematic regimen of using Stan Gross protocol for working with high doses of LSD to systematically explore the deep structure of my own consciousness, and through that process... To explore the deep structure of the universe that became knowable or experiential, experientiable within those states of consciousness.
0: So it, you you studied religion, you, religious studies, and you taught that. Were you brought up with religion, Chris? I was raised Catholic, but by the time I finished
1: college. Um, I was no longer Catholic. Uh, I kind of studied my way out of religion altogether. By the time I finished graduate school, I was a deeply convinced agnostic with strong atheistic inclinations. So basically, all those years of education had kind of wiped religion out uh, out of my mental processes.
0: An agnostic with with atheistic inclinations. <laughs> I've been reading about about that uh, recently, and um, it's it's interesting. It's uh, I, this one man took the position of of the impossibility of atheism because by saying God does not exist, you, you're saying something that you can't prove and neither can the side that says that God does exist. So you've got yourself into an unprovable situation, whereas at least when you're an agnostic, you're just acknowledging there's uncertainty, and that's how it is. So, yeah, I so, think agnosticism enjoy- is
1: a stronger position, defensible position. Uh, so that's why I said yes. I'm an agnostic with athe- an atheistic inclination that is... Uh, all forms of theism, classically framed, uh, I reject. So it's more than just kind of a, an uncertainty; it's a deep disbelief in the classical theisms that we're familiar with historically, and an, a position yes. of deep unknowability. Uh, and that's sort of a strange starting point for someone who now, you know, has written so much about. Um, the nature of the transcendent of transcendent reality.
0: Yes, let's talk some about that. How old were you when you had your first uh, psychedelic experience? I did this work uh,
1: between when I was thirty to fifty years old, between nineteen seventy nine and nineteen ninety nine. So it was right when I had begun teaching uh, at the very beginning of my career. In 1978, and I began my work in 1979.
0: And did you start right out with high dose, they, uh, defined as between five and 600 uh, micrograms, or did you work your way up?
1: I started actually. I had three sessions at about 250 micrograms, so I got my sea legs uh, at that dose level. Uh, but basically, I started doing high-dose work because I was still thinking in terms of a personal model of transformation and a model of of kind of finite karma, as I had learned in Eastern sources. I thought, and, and it was very difficult. I had a dual-career marriage situation, and uh, it was hard to find time to be able to spend an entire day and a, a weekend doing this type of work. So I thought by working with high doses, I would basically clean out my karma faster. Um, then, And if I could just survive the intensity of the confrontation and would confront my shadow conscientiously, that I would accelerate my own personal transformation faster. Now, all of that way of thinking um, blew up over the first couple of years when I began to realize that My sessions were going into waters much, much deeper than anything to do with my personal unconscious, much deeper than... and the project became much deeper than uh, personal transformation. But once I came to that understanding several years into the work, I had developed uh, a capacity and a familiarity working with high doses, so I continued in that genre though I don't recommend this protocol. I honestly don't. Uh, Now that I understand the things that I understand at the end of this journey, I really would recommend uh, a much gentler approach to the deep psyche. Uh,
0: Yeah. Well, when you say a much gentler approach, are you also uh, suggesting a a gentler end game, in other words, starting with less, but not working your way up to five or six hundred, or a gentler approach, meaning maybe starting with a hundred, but working your way up to 500 or 600?
1: No, I mean a more nuanced, uh, therapeutic protocol overall, alternating, uh, lower doses with higher doses, alternating, um, LSD with more body grounded psychedelics like psilocybin or ayahuasca. Um, I think of LSD as kind of a high ceiling psychedelic. It tends to push the cosmological ceiling, at least it's, and especially at these dose levels, whereas psilocybin and ayahuasca are more um, grounded psychedelic experiences, give you much more of a of a a deep engagement with one's physical body, with one's emotional processes in that that sense. And therefore, a balancing of the rhythm of and only going into high-dose spaces periodically in punctuated ways rather than hammering so relentlessly at those deep, far boundaries. I think that would give a better result in the end. But... That's what I know now. I see. That's that,
0: yeah. That was yeah. very helpful. So you're not suggesting to avoid the five, the high dose altogether. You're saying create a balance between both high doses and lower doses, but also create a balance w- w- with other, perhaps other psychedelics. How many ayahuasca uh, uh, journeys have you experienced, Chris? I've really? only
1: done. I've only done a few of them. I think I've done four ayahuasca sessions. It's just the opportunities that have come my way and not come my way.
0: And uh, uh, what about uh, psilocybin? How, how many times do you think you've experimented with that?
1: Oh, this was all work that I did after I stopped my my LSD work in 99. Yeah. Uh, I would I say probably... Maybe 15, 20 times.
0: I see. Okay, so what you're saying is your experiences with the different psychedelics were more consecutive, and now retrospectively you're saying perhaps one might do better by having them uh, alternating more concurrently rather than consecutively. So in order to create what you're describing as more of a balance... Yes,
1: I think so. I think um, working with psilocybin, for example, can help you integrate deeper um, LSD experiences. Uh, they can help your body absorb the enormous energies that are activated when you move into very, very deep, pure states of consciousness with, with LSD.
0: So please take us back to the beginning when you started And get into some details for our listeners, please. Our listeners who perhaps have not read your books for whatever reason, but maybe they'll be inspired to now. I think so. Mm -hmm. But give us some of the details and the circumstances of when you started. And who were you with at the time? You know, the -hmm. actual meat and potatoes. Well, uh,
1: I was married. And I had the good fortune of being married to a clinical psychologist. And uh, Carol, and my first wife, and we were married for 24 years. Carol is the mother of my children. Um, she was the sitter in all of my sessions. She learned the psychedelic protocols with me by reading the literature with me. The protocols straight out of Stan Groff's book, LSD Psychotherapy. So I always, I mean, I always started in the early morning, um, I always worked in complete isolation. I was always protected. I was working at home or in my wife's office. I was lying down, eye shades, earphones, very carefully selected music, puke bucket by a corner because at least working in these levels, for me, always involved a fair amount of throwing up along the way. Um, Working basically... um, Doing a lot of preparation, a lot of attention to set and setting, a lot of meditation practice beforehand, yoga, taking care of the body, watching my diet before session, always working on an empty stomach. And once all these preparations are in place, once you're sure that you're not going to be interrupted, you're completely safe, someone will keep you safe, then taking the medicine and just absolutely surrendering to whatever emerges, letting it take you wherever it's going to take you. No matter how little sense it makes at the time, no matter how frightening it can become, letting it take you, trusting the process. And that's one of the great things I got from Stan Gross' work, an absolute trust uh, in the intelligence that one is engaging when one does this type of deep work that you can trust it, and it will always come to good outcome. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody should do psychedelics, of course. There are some people who really shouldn't do psychedelics, and there are lots of people who should never do high-dose psychedelics. But if you have an aptitude for it, and you've taken precautions, and you really approach this work with uh, clear focus and clear intent, I think it can be very productively harnessed, Now, in my case, it was harnessed for philosophical exploration. I was not primarily interested in healing. I'm not a psychologist, though I received much healing along the way. What I was primarily interested in was exploring core philosophical questions about the meaning of existence, the structure of existence, what the nature of reality is.
0: You so many questions come to mind at once, yeah. and you said, but I, some people should not take these substances, you said, and some people should not take high doses um, before we go into what you discovered about meaning, which is central to me, um, please tell us about those people who you think should not take psychedelics, and those who should not take high doses. Where are you on that, please?
1: Well, again, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I do not have formal training in these matters, so I'm speaking here strictly as a layman, drawing on my own experiences and drawing from my reading of the literature. Um, There are people who have predispositions are uh, subtleties in their psychological makeup or maybe even biophysical makeup where pushing their consciousness in this type of direction, in, in these pushing them in these limits, is just not a wise idea. Uh, I mean, Carl Jung would listen to the dreams of an incoming patient, a potential patient, and sometimes he just did not think it was good for a particular patient to go into deep, analytic work Uh, I think the same thing is true for psychedelic therapy and there are some in order to go do sustained deep psychedelic work you have to have a certain constitution for it I mean it really is like any kind of very aggressive adventure you have to have a constitution that can handle large quantities of ambiguity, uh, deep psychological stress. You have to have a life circumstance that can support you in this endeavor because no one goes into these places alone. So you really have to sort of self-assess. I mean, you wouldn't climb Mount Everest without making a very taking careful stock of your resources. You wouldn't go to the Amazonian jungle on your own without really doing your homework and knowing what you're getting into. And the same thing is true when one begins to move into very deep non ordinary states of consciousness because you're entering territory relatively speaking, which has not been well traveled by many people and you you have to be you have to be prepared for such an undertaking
0: You have to be prepared mm-hmm. you You mentioned the word uh the words deep stress, you have to be prepared for deep stress. And I also know that in your writings, um, you've talked about uh, suffering, that you have to be prepared for suffering. Please tell us more about about deep stress and suffering.
1: Well, when I began the work, I was familiar with the concept of ego death and I, I basically was prepared to sort of go through that exercise that the death of self is common theme in mystical traditions and uh, the death of the ego is a very important element in Stan Grof's uh, work. But what I found in my own practice doing this long-term high-dose therapeutic protocol was that you go through... Uh, not one but death but a series of deaths in this process and you go through a series of deaths and rebirths because the universe presents itself to you in layers or you can think of it as it presenting itself to you in layers or you entering it in layers and each layer has its own, own protocol its own set of rules and its own level of energy it's it, in my sense that so the deeper you go into consciousness the more you are entering higher and higher levels of energy. And your body-mind has to acclimate to that energy in order to have coherent experiences at that level. If you have glancing contact only with these deep dimensions, that isn't necessarily the case. But to enter into a deep, non-ordinary state of consciousness, to get access to a deeper level of reality, and to have stabilized cognition with good recall... Of that reality. It takes a great deal of purification process, and I understand the suffering that takes place, and I understand death itself as basically a form of purification. So in my book, I talk about the cycle of purification and the discovery over time that the cycle of death and rebirth is actually a cycle of purification and initiation. And so there is In fact, you go through so many cycles as your journey continues deeper and deeper that it becomes a theoretical question. Exactly what is dying in these what you experience as these successive deaths? And I have an appendix in the book which addresses the question, what is dying and being reborn? And I lay out sort of four levels of an answer when only the first is ego death. Uh, And even though these subsequent deaths are very personal in a way, it's not ego that is dying, but something more. I was so concerned about this that it is actually my major, the major concern I had when I began to share my journey with the world in this book was the quantity of suffering that it involves. I was concerned that people would be uh, scared by what they thought it implied about the universe or that they would misjudge the methodology. Uh, And yet I could not conceal the suffering because I think it's important first just to be honest about the nature of the journey, and because it has important theoretical ramifications. Early stages of the suffering have to do with your personal story and your personal history. Later stages, a later stage of the story, has to do with humanity's history, It has to do with clearing trauma, which is lodged within the collective unconscious. And there's a way in which, even though you start the work as an individual, as one opens and expands deeply enough, one actually engages or dissolves into dimensions of the collective psyche, which you can then begin to facilitate a healing of those dimensions by consciously engaging some of the pain that's stored there, just as you can heal your own personal psyche by consciously engaging the pain that's stored in your personal unconscious. And so for years after I finished my personal kind of death-rebirth process, I was involved in this, what I call the ocean of suffering, which was a collective process and then I went into deeper levels of archetypal reality and deeper levels on the causal and what I call the diamond luminosity domain. and there's always a price to pay for entering these deeper levels. you You kind of have to kind of pay the the initiation fee. you You have to be willing to surrender everything you have known up to that point in time and dissolve everything that you have been up to that point in time in order to be taken into and be yet again re-educated on how this new level of reality operates. At least that's how that's what happened to me, and that's a story I've tried to tell in LSD and the Mind of the Universe.
0: One of the uh, many, many important points that you make is that it's important for us to know when we experiment with a substance that alters our consciousness, whether we're having an idiosyncratic response, this is our response to this particular substance, or whether others are having similar responses And you say you were able to uh, read about and make contact with others in order to get an answer to that question. Would you comment, please, about that?
1: Well, yeah. This is one of the reasons Stan Grof's work was so important to me. Because Stan's work was based upon his his working with so many hundreds, even thousands of people, and his collected writings he was gathering the experience of so many many people and offering a uh, a map of consciousness that was derived from many people uh, and that gave me a, a wide sense of the lay of the landscape and it gave me a sense of understanding how my experiences fit into that larger landscape. And then in addition to that, I had the advantage of being a professor of religious studies and I taught courses in comparative mysticism. I taught courses in Buddhism. So I had a sense of many spiritual autobiographies and I had a sense of some of the ordeals that various spiritual aspirants went through, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and many uh, Eastern teachers. Uh, so I always had a, a context in which to situate my own experiences, uh, and if and even when I entered domains which seemed to be pushing the edges and taking me into relatively not a completely but relatively uncharted or undercharted territory, uh, because it was continuous. With my experience of chartered territory, I felt confident that it was legitimate. And in addition, it's not just a cognitive judgment that we make after the fact. It's also um, a phenomenological judgment that we we make when we're in the middle of these experiences. These experiences carry an epistemic weight that is um, quite distinctive and And because you're you're constantly in dialogue with an intelligence with a consciousness that takes you in, and there is a continuity of this conversation, a continuity of communion, so my experience was that every session more or less began more or less where the previous session ended, and there were stages of initiation, so it was an ongoing communion, an ongoing dialogue. In which one is literally being worked with, one is taught, one is initiated, one is purified, one is broken down, one is taken into, and one is loved in this process. One is loved and rewarded. It is a the entire experience, in my experience anyway, is uh, one of deepening rapport, deepening consciousness, uh, not a deepening communion. With the creative intelligence
0: of the universe, prima facie, if we say to somebody, "You take some of this, and you're going to have ego death," that's pretty scary. I I don't know, you know, what an average person they hear ego death. You know, what what does that mean? I mean, does that mean you know, my mind is going to die? Or the way I know myself is going to die? Or my personality? I mean, what is this going to be like? And so how prepared were you? You read Groff. You read other things. You're a highly educated man. And so you had a lot of reading. I don't know how many other people you talked to that went through this. But you did a lot of reading. What Did the reading prepare you f- adequately for that action? experience of ego death the first time you encountered it?
1: You know, it prepared me as much as reading can prepare you. Um, but it can only prepare you to a certain extent. Uh, the, after my first session, I came out of it and I thought, what the hell was I thinking? Did I think I could really die? <laughs> could really dying? You know, it, it's like it's like reading a book about war and thinking somehow that has prepared you for what happens in battle or, or reading a book about marriage and thinking that really has prepared you for the nuts and bolts of it. So I was prepared as much as I could be prepared. And when my world began to fall apart, in, you know, it, I basically went through what Stan Grof calls the perinatal dimension of consciousness, which is that... It's that territory one enters when one is pushing beyond the limits of your time-space experience. And I think if we think of it in a... If we we think of it this way, that your consciousness begins to open to dimensions which are simply too large to be held by your time-space experience. The being that I have been up to that point in time... Has a certain range of capacity, but when your consciousness opens beyond anything, when it opens beyond time-space reality, when it opens beyond your time-space reality, you can't you can't be yourself and have these experiences. So you have to choose, and this is what I think we call my ego death. It's Basically, these sessions basically break you down. They just can snap you like a twig. They invert you. They they basically crush you. Uh, and in that crushing is is actually a great mercy. It's like the the tankas that we see of uh, Kali, where she's standing and she's wearing the ornaments of skulls, and she looks fierce, terribly fierce. But it 's those skulls are a sign of her mercy because those are the skulls of the being she has liberated from their egoic existence. So the fierceness of ego death actually is a great mercy.
0: Gosh, sometimes listening to you, Chris, it sounds sort of like, boy, does it feel good when I stop hammering my thumb? (laughs) (laughs) I understand. And I laughed when you said that after your first experience, you said, you know, like, what the heck did I do this for? And the reason I laughed is because my first experience sixty years ago, uh, as a graduate student, I ingested four hundred morning glory seeds after reading Leary and Albert's uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, and uh, and and I went through uh, ego death. I experienced it. I, I remember it like it was this morning. I thought I really was dying. It didn't yeah. seem like just my ego was dying. I thought I was dying, and yeah. I and I thought maybe there was some poison. They put rat poison in with those morning glory seeds, or some pesticide, or some kind of stuff in there. And that's yeah. what happened. And I've got that, and now I'm just going to die. And uh, and I went through that. The sitters were so frightened that they said they would never sit with anybody again the rest of their their lives. I knew that I would do it as soon as possible again, that I had come upon something, you know, extremely important. Um, but I, I definitely did think I remember it that, I mean, I will never forget it, that, that it, that, that it wasn't an ego death. It was a total death and this was the end. And, uh, Actually, that has stood, me in very, it's, has stood me in very good stead over the years, Chris, because uh, since that time, when, when I've gotten afraid of whatever it is in this world, I immediately go to that place of dying and just let myself die, because that's the worst. You know, I go to the basis of all fear, which for me would be dying, and I lay down and die Well, so far every time I've awakened again. So, you know, it's a good tactic for, for uh, dealing with the fear. So yeah. I, I'm coming back yep. to your uh, early experiences again. You're either in your wife's office or somewhere safe in your home. You're wearing eye shades and have earphones. That's the classical. That's what I was taught by Dr. Leo Zeff, by the way, that mm-hmm. uh, classical uh, method, eye, eye shades and, and earphones. And... um the music became important to me during those experiences with leo zeff because i came to realize that i was being highly affected by the music yeah. it was it was so i was in a state of such suggestibility that sometimes i focused on the music i remember he used to play beethoven for me and and I would just be enthralled by what a mind, what a person, how did he do this, you know, how did he possibly create this and what precision and what, you know, and so on and so on and taken away. But I also realized that I was getting a little too taken up with Beethoven and I wasn't in there to be looking at Beethoven. I was in there yeah. to be looking at myself. Yeah. So, tell us a little about your use of music and how you selected it, and what you selected over the 20 years.
1: Well, <clears throat> the selection of music is very important, and has to be done very carefully. And you're right, it can become a distraction. And again, generalizations here are very tricky, so I always want to bracket what I'm saying is this was specific to this particular protocol so the music I was working I was choosing was a music specifically for a high dose protocol and in a high dose protocol you're basically blowing your consciousness apart You're, you're not taking it in by layers you're just shattering it and dissolving it and you're dissolving your mind into orders and orders and orders of mind and music can help you uh, gather your strength and focus you. It can help you break through your own layers of resistance as you as you go forward. And so, you know, I've, I used uh, some of the early work done by Helen Body and um, to on understanding this the pacing of the stages of a session with the types of music. So I would have a certain types of music in the very very beginning as the drug was coming on a different more slightly more intense music when the energy was building uh in the body mind and then very powerful dramatic long uh, passages of music when i was in the pushing towards peak and then shifting music again when you were in the peak hours when you've broken through and you're in the the huge, spacious places, and then a different music sets of music as you 're going into the very, very long, slow return, because of course lSD has a long tail, and it's it 's a matter where you 're wanting to hold your memories and process them, process them as your consciousness recongeals the long tail is a very good time to to remember and process your experiences and ponder them in the context of your life and your previous learning i found that for me while i started with some you know musical playlists that were available in the early days uh, which involved classical music beethoven's piano first movement of the piano concertos for example other classical pieces i happened upon uh early on uh the balinese monkey chant and that music had such a dramatic impact on the intensity and depth of my session that i immediately pivoted and i began to collect indigenous music and i, I left the familiarity of classical music not entirely but for the most part i and for the breakthrough for the powerful you know sort of surging material I chose music coming from uh, in indigenous cultures, indigenous music. Music, it's important to use music that you're not familiar with. No music with English lyrics because you don't want any, any words that you're familiar with, scripting uh, your experience. No music you're familiar with. And I found that I could only use music about three times in a session. After that, the music gets saturated with the experiences that you've had with the music. And if you want to have fresh experiences, you don't want to script it with your old experiences, with memories being tried music you had used. So I was constantly revising and expanding my lab, my library to bring new music uh, into the sessions.
0: You are like a Lewis and Clark of us, <laughs> D.A right you you are you are because contrast to people that I have interviewed and talked to over fifty years about these experiences. what is wonderful and unusual and i and you know it about what you did is that you were regimented, you were disciplined, you did a particular thing in a particular way. And you took notes, and you took notes the next day as well. I know that. We're going to talk about that. And so you have gone through the terrain and have a map, and people listening to this are going to be able to benefit from both hearing this broadcast and from reading your books. And it will help them a great deal. Because if they're going to be going from L.A. to New York and it's complete wilderness and and hardly anybody's ever done it before, to be able to read about and listen to a man who's done it can be tremendously helpful. So with that introduction, break the experience up. How long does it typically take? How many hours? And give us a by blow the first hour the first the second third because you obviously have broken it into segments enough in order to have music for different parts of the experience so amplify that for us please so that these people who are going to make this journey through the wilderness you know have some de- more details
1: well <clears throat> thank you for your comments and and I did try to be disciplined and I did try to Uh, take careful notes. I mean, I was trained as an analytic philosopher. I was trained as an historian, you know, so I really, you know, tried to stay organized in the process. And frankly, I I wanted to leave careful breadcrumbs in case I got lost. I wanted to be able to find my way back, which turned out not to be an issue.
0: Uh,
1: And I also want to say that whatever map, and and I do have a, a, a cosmology that's emerged in my work. And I do have an understanding of certain layers and the phenomenology of those layers. But that is specific to this substance and this protocol. If you use the same substance with a different protocol, lower doses, you would tap into the infinite complexity of the universe differently. If you used uh, different substances, psilocybin are... Peyote, or ayahuasca, each substance has a certain access to a certain range of consciousness, and um, there. What strikes me most when I look at my work as a whole is is that is its depth, but also what's not in my sessions, what doesn't appear, and what appears so strongly in other people's sessions, and I, I think that. What's important is the aggregate map that we gather when we gather the experiences of many people working with many substances together, and we look at them simultaneously. So, for example, ayahuasca gives one great contact with what you might call the elementals, with nature spirits, with the nearby uh, spirits of one's life, with the guardians of one's soul, or uh, the lower deity realms, for example. Um, and all of these territories are things that I didn't spend a lot of time exploring. And, and so we really have to be careful. My map is just, first it's my map, and then it's this substance and this protocol. So with those provisions... Uh, Helen Bonney uh, differentiated uh, five different stages of uh, a session. I tended to break it down into sort of four more simply. Uh, There is user-friendly, familiar music, which you're waiting while the drug is coming on just to keep yourself relaxing. There is music during the next hour while the drug is coming on and you're feeling the energy build up, more and more energy building up in your body you're beginning to lose uh, your grip, so to speak, on physical reality. Uh, And that builds an intensity. And my experience is that every session breaks down into two halves, so to speak, halves, not literally temporal halves. But there is the first phase of the session is always some form of intense purification some form of physical, psychological, psycho-spiritual purification, which involves coming to terms or engaging some of the limits that are built into your body-mind experience, some into your history, or limits that are built into human experience, into human history, or limits that are built into being a material being at all. Uh, there are some of the limits are so strange that you encounter you can't even understand how these limits are constricting your experience until after you've moved beyond them so there is that let's go back to an individual session there are these early hours where the energy is building you're getting drawn into more and more potentially frightening potentially intimidating certainly physically demanding psychologically demanding Experiences, And then eventually, if you surrender to them, if, if you can hold the posture and surrender to them, you come to a, a breaking point. You come to a, a transition where uh, some deep sacrifice is asked of you, or you simply endure a purification which eventually runs its course, and then you're lifted into a deeper, more expansive state of consciousness. And this is entering into the second half of the session, the ecstatic half of the session. Now, uh, sometimes you move back and forth across this boundary multiple times. You may move into the ecstatic portion and then be asked to go back into purification and then back into the ecstatic portion. Sometimes an entire session is spent in purification. And the following session immediately takes you into the ecstatic side of things. And sometimes people don't experience much purification at all. They just go right into bliss. And that's fine if that's what happens for you in the day. But in my experience, the most valuable sessions are the ones that involve the deepest purification. Because those purifications are what give you access to the deeper levels of intimacy with the nature of the divine, with the, the deep structure of the universe. So you've made your breakthrough, you've gone through this breakthrough, you now have been catapulted into some dimension of breath, of, of transpersonal breath. And the remainder of your session, let's say, to keep it simple, is going to be spent in this territory, enjoying it, basking in its glory, receiving teachings in it. Uh, And then this will continue with a very high-dose LSD session. We're looking at an eight-hour day, uh, five to six hours of very, very intense work. So you may spend an hour, two hours in the purification phase, and you're spending hours in the breakthrough phase. Again, this is a an abstraction from repeated experiences. It's not a norm, it, you know, for any one person's individual experience. And then the peak experiences continues for a long period of time, and then the body does its work, and you begin to uh, slowly, slowly find the boundaries of your consciousness beginning to congeal, beginning to come back. You begin to reconnect with time, Space, you begin to reconnect with your physical presence. And in that long tail that LSD gives you, you have the opportunity to ruminate, to, to digest your experiences so that by the end of the session, I will have made of what the major elements of the session were to anchor the, the narrative that I'll create the next day.
0: During the eight hours you started, let's say at nine o'clock in the morning, are you wearing your eye shades for the entire eight hours until five o'clock? Pretty much.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes
0: and I'll open up
1: in the last couple of hours, but usually pretty much.
0: Okay. And, and, you're laying flat most of the time or sitting in a chair which one or both lying down lying down I'm lying, lying and down yeah what can you tell us about your experience of your physical body during this during the uh the LSD experience
1: once again 20 years 73 sessions there's a lot of variability and so we'd have to break it down. But basically once I'm into it, once I was several years into it, once I was beginning to break through Mm -hmm. deep into collective, into the collective consciousness and then deeper still into archetypal um, and deep spiritual reality. When I was past that first period of purification i had very little awareness of my body at all it's not that i was in an out of body state because i don't do out of body states much but basically my living experience something so large vast that what was happening to my body i had very little it's not that i wasn't unaware of it if somebody moved me or touched me i was aware of it but I was focused in a completely different reality, and I only began to come back into my personal reality many hours uh, down the road. And, you know, the story that I tell in LSD and the Mind of the Universe is not primarily a personal story. I mean, it is a personal story, of course. It's my experiences, and I accept that. But I found that insights and healings... uh, that pertain to my personal life for the most part surfaced in the beginnings and endings of my sessions when I was leaving and coming back into time-space reality. But after the first 15 sessions or so, after I'd gone through deep ego death kind of experiences, when I was operating during the peak hours, I was not operating within a frame of reference of Chris personal life. That's not entirely true. Once in a while, an entire session was given over to personal healing. But most of the time, I was operating far beyond my personal reality and only slowly came back in touch with my personal reality. Now, to engage, to have that type of sustained drink with spiritual reality, to have that type of, I would want to maintain that communion as deep, let it go as deeply as possible and hold it as long as possible. To do that, you have to use the, all the skills you learn in meditation of, of focusing your, your awareness, getting yourself concentrated and then converting those into the psychological condition where I would use, I would keep the headphones on and I would keep the music carefully programmed. Of course, I wasn't choosing the music. My sitter was choosing the music according to what she saw and what I was asking for. I would want to stay focused on the deep cosmology, on the deep cosmos. I would not want to be focused on my personal life because the adventure was in exploring the deep structure. So what I did when I wrote LSD in the Mind of the Universe, I really dropped out a lot of the personal Story, The personal healings and things like this, because everybody has a personal story and everybody who does this work goes through personal healings and that's all well and good. It's really important. But what I was primarily interested in was the larger story. As a philosopher, it was the larger story that I wanted to tell. And that's a story I'm telling in LSD in the Mind of the Universe.
0: Yes, you know, I asked you the question about the physical body in part because in my experience, uh, I don't have much, if any, sense of my physical body. It, 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 I, my, my sense of myself is that I'm a consciousness. And mm-hmm. in fact, what that led me to uh, to believe, uh, which sort of changed my thinking, <clears throat> was that consciousness can exist without a material body, uh, mm-hmm. which... Uh, of course, has uh, implications for what possibly happens after we die, what we call dying and leaving our physical body. You know, the question of whether consciousness uh, exists. Uh, Coming back to your specific, uh, you know, to your circumstance, during the eight hours, from time to time, are you communicating with your wife, who's your guide, or are you pretty much silent? Or does it vary with the different experiences?
1: Very little communication. Um, Sometimes I would let her know where I was or I had gone through a transition. I needed different music. But we did not talk. Um, Sometimes she would check in with me. uh, But largely the only way or the primary way she would communicate with me was through the music, through changing the music. Uh, when you're working at doses this high, at least for me, it largely knocks out your verbal functions so that even the night after a session is over, my capacity to articulate is is compromised. It's really not for 24 hours that I get my full verbal skills back. And during the eight-hour
0: session... Hmm? I hear that. During the approximate eight-hour session... Do you take water?
1: Uh, yeah, I will be drinking water from time to time. I uh, thought, so, yeah, I do take some water from time to time, uh, but consciously, it it is you know I call them sessions and they are sessions because they're, it's not recreational. It's but it's really you know like the the Zen term of the sashin, a sashin is a, period, a set aside, a period of time set aside for spiritual practice, traditionally, meditation practice. And I think of these as psychedelic sessions, uh, but I thought that might be a little precious, so I, they are to me sessions. They are periods of time set aside for very, very intense spiritual practice, using all the amplifying power of these substances. But the, what I contribute is the, the intentionality and the discipline of learning how to ride these states of consciousness, learning how to stay focused in them, and surrendering to them in, in order because it, not because I like suffering and not because I like you know the, some of the harder things it puts you through, but for the joy of discovery, for the joy of, of the communion, for the ecstasy of, of dissolving so deeply into the universe, and learning those things which can only be learned in those conditions. I mean, as you know, in these states of consciousness, you learn by becoming. You can't take the ego out somewhere and have an experience. You learn by dissolving into the reality that you are having the experience of. And when you surrender completely to some of these conditions, the ecstasy is the ecstasy of intimacy with dimensions of being and dimensions of of sense of, of, of intelligence and dimensions of compassion, which at least would lie outside my ordinary time-space experience. Now, there are great beings, of course, who have completely natural access to these dimensions without any of the amplifiers of psychedelics and and those beings those great mahasiddhas the great spiritual masters are always have always been my my models for how to conduct oneself in the sessions but for me a person of much more modest capacity it is these precious hours of communion which make the entire uh, process worthwhile, deeply worthwhile.
0: So these experiences, 73 of them, were going on for 20 years from the time you were approximately 30 to approximately 50 years old. During that time, did you have anyone or any ones that you were able to share these experiences with, or was it pretty much you and your wife?
1: Well, <clears throat> for most of that time it was me and my wife. I mean, I lived in northeast Ohio. I wasn't living in the Bay Area, you know, in San Francisco. If I lived in a in a, a more psychedelically initiated community, there would have been more people I could speak with. But I had to keep this work completely private in order to protect my career. You know, I could not let my students ever know about this work or my colleagues, And though my friends knew what I was doing, but I just could not bring it into my professional life. But eventually, you know, as time went on, I began to publish, when I published uh, Dark Night, Early Dawn, in 2000, I had finished my LSD sessions, and dark Night, Early dawn brought me to the California Institute of Integral Studies, where I taught, did some summer teaching, uh, in the Department of Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness, and then I went to uh, the. I was the director of education or transformative learning at IONS, at Institute of Noetic Sciences, for two years. So by that time. I was. I had more and more opportunities to speak with people about these things, but during the years when I was incubating the deep work, my contact was limited. It was really only a very few people, and uh, and, and a very limited number of contacts in the Bay Area, um, which has its ups and downs. Clearly, it has its downs. The up is, I. It, I had the space in order to figure out on my own some of the paradoxes that were emerging in my work, and I did so without having recourse to the advice of other people, which I think in some ways would have been helpful, but in other ways would have been constricting,
0: did you take heat from people with regard to your experimentation? Were, were there criticisms? Were you concerned about such things, being a university professor?
1: Hmm. I did not take heat in my, uh, in my university environment because they didn't really know about it. And then when it began to become more public later in my career, when I became more selectively outspoken, uh, by that time, I had earned my spurs at the university. And, you know, if you if you're a good teacher and if you're dedicated to your students and you take good care of your students and you're a good colleague to your in your department and you do the things that colleagues do for one another, you you handle the responsibilities of all the committee assignments at the department and college and university level. If you do those things, you you, you generate a, a body of goodwill. And by the time my psychedelic work was becoming uh, public, uh, I was good friends with my department and university colleagues. And so I, I had their the benefit of the doubt. I had their respect. Now... That doesn't mean that they really understood what I was doing, and it was really, uh, I mean, they actually gave me an award for, the university did, for Dark Night, Early Dawn, which is, you know, my first book on psychedelics, and which means, <laughs> I think which gives us a, an indication that our colleagues who sit on these committees who assign these re- awards don't have the time to read the books that they're judging. They have, <laughs> so I don't think they ever really read the book. But by the time I wrote LSD in the Mind of the Universe, I had retired. And I had to wait to retire before I could even begin that book. Because because I think it would have jeopardized my ability to maintain my career. And I love teaching. I love being with the students. I wouldn't want to put Mm -hmm. that at risk.
0: If you were put in charge of a group of scientists all of whom were about to do research into psychedelics, where would you point them? What would you like to see them do?
1: Hmm. Well, I would like it to be scientists. I would also like it to be artists. I would like it to be historians. I'd like, it to, I'd like us to collect a gathering of the best of the best, uh, covering a wide variety of disciplines. And I think if they were to undertake a, a systematic exploration, so if they were willing to dedicate one uh, day a month to this work and keep track of their experiences for a year or maybe even two years uh, and were willing to work with different substances but always in a deeply internalized, deeply focused with a consistent protocol. I think that's really, really important because the uh, the clarity of the protocol and the precision of the protocol uh, sets up uh, how well you integrate, how well you record, how well you document and then ponder the experiences that you've had in one session sets the foundation for what happens in your next session. It's like keeping a dream journal. If you start to keep track of your dreams, you start to have more interesting dreams because it's as if your unconscious says, "Oh, he's paying attention. I'm going to start really communicating to this person." Likewise in psychedelic work, the more thoroughly you integrate your work, the more uh, the more the universe will reveal to you in subsequent work. So I would aim them towards a precision of protocol a variety of substances, careful recording of the experiences, and then uh, uh, sharing, gathering, collecting everyone's experiences, putting all the puzzle pieces on the table. Any one person's experiences can always be maybe skewed in an idiosyncratic direction. But when we have lots of people's experiences we factor out those idiosyncrasies and we begin to see the common ground.
0: Based on on your cosmological research all these years, where are you on the issue of essence preceding existence or existence preceding essence?
1: Oh, goodness, you're asking me to think like a philosopher. And, you know, I find that I don't think like a philosopher in that way anymore. (laughs) I think psychedelics represent a turning point in how we can do philosophy, just as they represent a turning point in how we do clinical practice of how we do therapeutic work with clients. It also represents a, a, a turning point, a true turning point in history in how we do philosophy by systematically expanding consciousness and then coming back and digesting, evaluating the experiences that we've had, that opens up new territory. But as as someone who is that kind of philosopher, well, my experience has been that there are many, many levels, levels upon levels upon levels to our universe. And that the deeper levels or that all the all the surface levels are sourced in rooted in ontologically and epistemologically rooted in the deeper levels and that eventually one re- can follow the whole process of evolution back and you can follow actually the cosmology of existence, the birth of the universe back into the primal void out of which all existence emerged. One can dissolve into the archetypal currents that lie in between the primal one and the manifest many. One can have conscious rapport with those dimensions. And and the more deeply I've gone into that, the more the more I bow down in deep abiding respect to the majesty to the creativity, to the scale of the intelligence which lies behind the universe. So that all of the our individual, the small the philosophies, the the questions I had going in, many of them were answered, but many of them were just dissolved by the radical reframing I was forced into as my experience opened into deeper and deeper levels. Of, of this of this being so it's a
0: yeah the very the very questions themselves dissolved is what they you do. Say.
1: And, and new ones take their place uh new ones take their place so that in the beginning i had a very personal orientation i you mean know, i was looking for something good to come out of this for me but in most of my work as it opened, what I really wanted was something good to come out of it for my species. The story became the evolution of the species. The, the, I was taken into deep time, which is a different modality of time, when in the early years I experienced my life as a completed whole, start to finish, as a simultaneous now. I know that sounds absurd, but that's, that was the nature of the experience consistently for several years but then eventually i was taken into deeper and deeper levels of deep time and i was given experiences of the evolution of humanity and given a series of insights or consistent teachings over years of the crisis that humanity is is coming into and this was taking place in the you know in the 90s in the mid 90s and i was not ecologically informed and i was not at all aware of the Things that we are aware of today, in terms of our ecological crisis and the that 's impending on with us now and but I began to have visions of humanity entering this profound crisis and going through a, a collective death and rebirth process, a, 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 literally a, a process that was going to change human existence, not only socially not only our civilization our economics our but changes archetypally at the at the core of the blueprint of the collective unconscious that nature was in the process of drawing forth from history a higher functioning human being, a higher form of human being, and that it had been preparing this, it had been building this and preparing this through thousands and thousands and thousands of years of reincarnation. In the constant expansion and contraction, expanding and contraction, we were learning more, we were becoming more, we were developing new and deeper capacities. And I think there is a crescendo coming, not only in how we conduct ourselves on the surface of the planet, culturally, socially, politically, but simultaneously there is a crescendo coming in our inner evolution so that just as we are trying to come together as a planet, in some deep, deep way, we are also coming together psycho-spiritually. I think that all of our former lives are coming to a fusion point. They're coming into a point of merger. They're coming into a fusion point and giving birth in history, inside physical existence, to a higher form of identity, a higher individuality. This is what I call in the book the birth of the diamond soul. That the diamond soul is our soul identity which holds all of our former lives, all the memories of those lives and the memories of all the relationships we've had in those lives. That that, all those memories congeal and reach a fusion point and give birth to to the soul, but not a soul in the afterlife. A soul inside physical existence inside our bodily existence, so you know the scale of witnessing witnessing an entire planet going through an evolutionary process of that magnitude, witnessing rebirth, there were times when I was so far diluted in time and in space that I was witnessing. Generations of human beings being born, dying, living their life and dying, being re- reassimilated and, and being reborn again. Reincarnation as a collective process. Reincarnation as the species experiences it, not just as individuals. And seeing how all of our individual lives and our individual struggles were part of this larger evolving species which is part of the evolving divine in physical existence itself. See what I mean? It's just so many layers and layers that kept opening. It's, it's, It's hard to give them succinct summary.
0: You've done a terrific job, Chris, and thank you so much. You've offered our listeners something that's rare. I've been doing many interviews And most of the people who are psychedelic elders started recreationally and then some of them went on to using it uh, sacramentally and using it cosmologically. But you definitely have a rare uh, place in the psychonaut universe because of the thoroughness and uh, and what you brought to the table of your experiments and then what you did during the experiments in bringing this information to us. And I thank you very much for the interview today and for all you're bringing us. And for those of you listening, I'm sure you're you're enthralled in what you heard. Just a reminder, Chris Bache, B-A-C-H-E, LSD and the Mind of the Universe. You want to read that? And you want to read the other one, Dark Night, Early Dawn. So Thank you all for listening for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And thank you, Charlie Deist and David Springer, who working together as a team, make this broadcast possible. The preceding program is brought to you in part by Thanksgiving Coffee. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif, is a social worker and political activist from Brooklyn, New York, who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world by bringing them some of the money that comes from the coffee industry. Before Paul, they got hardly anything. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends, and he is soon adding a CBD blend. Paul donates 20% of all his internet sales of the special mind, body, health, and politics blends to the COVID response network, it's a non-profit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. So go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy some mind-body Health and Politics coffee, and support the COVID Response Network. Spare injury, save lives, and also it serves as a model for other programs. So health programs, that is. Please join me again next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis-Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.